become very, very clear to me in particular and to many other people out there that a lot of change that's done to people is just ineffective. And of course, there are lots of reasons for that. In a way, I suppose you're looking at things like human nature is naturally very skeptical of change. We like security, we like certainty. So the moment we hear that there's a change project at work, our first question is, am I safe? Is my job safe? And I think that's the thing that's often missed. And there can be, I suppose, big decisions made and change decisions made, which are isolated away from the people on the ground. And I think then when things are rolled out, they fail and they fail spectacularly. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald and your host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work and want to bring you insights from interesting people with nuggets of knowledge to share. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and you're welcome back to The Cord. Today, our topic is the leadership challenge from surviving to thriving. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Kerry Fleming, Associate Dean at Ashridge Executive Education in Hult International Business School. Kerry is a member of the teaching faculty and custom open and MBA programs, which are consistently ranked amongst the best in the world by the Financial Times. But most important, Kerry is a Kerry woman. Welcome to the podcast, Kerry. And we would like, firstly, to have a quick dive into your younger formative years, influences and values that shaped who you are today. That's great, John. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Yes. So I guess a lovely question to think back and look back at my formative years. Thanks to my family and growing up in the southwest coast of Ireland, I think the three values that I picked up very early on were around integrity, fairness and generosity. And I think they've led me to really great places and to meet great people in my life. I grew up in County Kerry by the sea, just right on the beach, on the coastline. I think it made me a very independent person, uh, very reflective, along with having a really great respect for nature, the power of the sea in particular. I was very grounded when I was there and still feel that way when I go and visit my homestead, but knew I had to leave to find a career. And my father thankfully gave us an education which he said would be one of the most important gifts we would receive in life. And I have to say he was right. So your early career journey then, you started your career in the Kerry Group and you progressed into research studying for your doctorate and then your interest in emotional agility. So why did you develop an interest in this space after leaving corporate life? I think I probably always had a deeply reflective and intuitive nature and I felt that when I left my home, went to college, did a Bachelor of Commerce in UCC, I went on to do a postgrad in marketing in NUI Galway and then headed into corporate life. I, I felt that, I didn't understand it at the time, but my reflective and intuitive nature was really cast aside by myself while I was working in a very fast-paced and highly successful organisation. I did well in my role in industry I started off in Kerry Group. I worked in customer services, sales, was working on a couple of really interesting strategic projects, which was an important acquisition nature of the business. It was a real baptism of fire and a fantastic baseline for me to start the rest of my career. 
However, I suppose a good few years of that early on in the career, that very high, fast-paced environment. And now that I look back, I'm able to articulate that intuitive and reflective part of myself. The emotional side of myself was very much put to the side. And I think it had a huge impact on my emotional and physical health. So when I left industry, I went back and did a master's in human resource management and strategy in Galway again, mostly to hang out in Galway and have a good time, I think. But it was really to try and reorientate myself towards a career in academia, which I didn't really know that that's where I was heading, but inevitably where I ended up. Back to your question, I then joined the University of Limerick for a couple of years. I was a junior academic there. I submitted a paper. I was a strategist, I suppose, at the time. I would have taught strategy and management and lots of different components of their business schedule and programs. But I was presenting a paper at the Academy Management Conference in San Francisco in 2007. And with great curiosity, I saw the title of a paper called Emotional Labour, which was being presented by a senior academic in INSEAD, Professor Q. Hugh. And I went to the paper and was quite amazed at that emotions could be applied at work in that way. So for me, it was a catalyst moment and a missing piece of the jigsaw. I then understood that emotions could be used at work and they could be channeled and used in a way which was really optimal for good decision making, teamwork, communication, a whole plethora of stuff, of course, that emerged. And I think then I set my sights on trying to bring emotional health to people at work and that became my ambition. So that's how I ended up in this particular field. Isn't it interesting that suppression of your emotions led to such great insight and As you speak there, it just brought up a moment for me when a colleague of mine, when I was suppressing my emotions, said to me, where's the real John gone before I started harmonics? And it was a light bulb moment for me to kind of make that shift as well, knowing that this wasn't an environment where I was going to thrive. And I suppose for so many people who do suppress their emotions, that there's a great learning there and maybe industry hasn't always thrived as a result of people suppressing their emotions. Big time, yeah. It's really interesting you say that. And I think as human beings, we're very clever. So we can immediately spot when people are performing and not being congruent to how they really feel in situations. And my work now would say, You can engage with the messiest parts of yourself is where you'll get the optimal outcome, where you really get to know the people around you when there's an honesty about what's going on for you, because people really connect and bond with that. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that whole piece about vulnerability that uh, Brenna Brown talks about, etc. So, you know, you're the Associate Dean on the Doctorate for Organisation Change, and that brings us into, you know, organisations evolving as systems. And in the past decade, in the past number of years through the pandemic, what have you seen that has been changing in these systems and how are they evolving? I suppose when I was taught change in my various undergrads, graduate and master's qualifications, change was all about the more traditional approach to change. So very mechanistic, a behaviourist view of institutions where change management was a big buzzword in the 90s and the 2000s. Obviously, mergers and acquisitions, which was the industry I came from, performance management and reward structures to try and make change happen. It's become very, very clear to me in particular and to many other people out there that a lot of change that's done to people is just ineffective. 
And of course, there are lots of reasons for that. In a way, I suppose you're looking at things like human nature is naturally very sceptical of change. We like security. We like certainty. So the moment we hear that there's a change project at work, our first question is, am I safe? Is my job safe? And I think that's the thing that's often missed. And there can be, I suppose, big decisions made and change decisions made, which are isolated away from the people on the ground. And I think then when things are rolled out, they fail and they fail spectacularly. And no matter how much people are pushed into this change, it just it doesn't work because people don't really they're not engaged hearts, minds aren't engaged. They might be running to show that they're doing part of the change, but in actual fact, it's not really happening. So the doctorate that I run at Ashridge, we look in particular about the nature of reality. So it goes back to the conversation we just had there a couple of moments ago, John, about the messiness of humans and what's really going on for them. And we really try and deconstruct that nature of reality the real nature of organisations and change and learning and what are the influences and what do we pay attention to and what actions lead to a particular outcome. So this is the process of change. You're deconstructing the change. It's not about just the end goal, but it's really getting in and getting stuck into how to do change without doing change to people. So I think that's really important. And one of the big components of the way that I would do change and teach change and work with people who are senior professionals in organisations who are doing change is that we have to usually start with the person themselves. And a lot of us are stuck in patterns of behaviours and attitudes from childhood, which we never really examine. So in the use of action research, which is a methodology which we use on the programme, we look at the patterns of behaviour and the lens and how they see the world and who has given them that lens to look through the world. And sometimes people can't access any of that because it's so dormant, it's so shut down. And we use more right hemisphere methods, presentational knowing, presentational form. We can have people doing art, poetry, story, dialogue as a way in to understand what are the parts of themselves that need to be looked at and changed before they can do any change process themselves. And I've seen transformational stories from people who have the courage to do that. So it's a very interesting move away from the more mechanistic approach to change to actually looking at change at an individual level and then the effect that that has on the people around it as it progresses. And doesn't that take leaders out of their comfort zone about mechanistic stuff that can be measured and <laughs> and balance sheets and so on and so forth? And I use art and coaching and getting people into a space where they start to draw things and really you just instantly exit into that right hemisphere then of creativity and stuff that, that's laying dormant for people, but it takes you out of your structured self that you were supposed to be. I think that topic of deconstruction is coming across in many different formats. I had Ravan Jesthusen on who wrote Work Without Jobs, where he talks about the deconstruction of jobs into skills and that's messy. And now we're talking about the deconstruction of people into all of these different attributes that they have. So as leaders, where should we be focusing our energies in leading these people to change? I think just to come back to the right and left hemisphere, and John, you're far more versed in the neuroscience than I am. But if you look at a typical child, 
from zero to four to five preschool children and you look at how they work and how they play if they're in a Montessori system or a preschool system and then the moment they go into a formal education and I can speak to the Irish and the UK education system there are two that I'm familiar with they're immediately pushed over into a very left hemisphere very logic rational you learn you do you repeat, you show, you measure, you blah, 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 all of those things. And that happens all the way up through university, especially if you go into more traditional careers like engineering, finance, accounting, anything with numbers, anything with with the outputs, etc. And I find that if, you know, people are so entrenched in that left brain hemisphere, if you're able to get them to at least rest that side of the brain for a while and start to play in the right hemisphere it's really incredible the amount of wisdom and real creativity that comes out i mean i work with the uk government and the military in particular and we specifically use various methods like storytelling and art to try and reignite that right brain hemisphere in order for them to problem solve in a different way which is away from evidence-based problem solving because of course they're dealing with big, big world problems, very complex issue around cyber terrorism, etc. And you can't go in with a traditional thought process because, of course, you're dealing with something which is almost like an amoeba. You can't come in with the kind of rational and um, very practical approach. So to move on then to, to answer the next piece, I mean, I'd be very straight about it. I think leaders in particular need to stop hatching grand plans in boardrooms and in isolation and thinking that people, their people are going to implement the next move because they think it's a good idea. You really have to connect with your people. If you're lucky enough to have talent in your organization, really see it, engage with it, hear it. Don't surround yourself with yes people, you know, really hear the people who often will go against you or say something differently and be curious. I always say, be curious about what's going on as opposed to judging. My experience is that any employees who are led by fear or, you know, I'm powerful, you're not, they're not creative. And number one, they're not psychologically safe. So they show up, do their job and leave. And I see these businesses stagnate. And then the leaders are more frustrated and they go into the boardroom again and say, oh, geez, we need to roll this out now. We need to do this. And actually, all that happens is the employees are getting blamed. They drive the business harder and actually people leave. Talent leaves and businesses end up almost being driven off a cliff because they feel this impetus to do something, anything just to keep moving. And that is a very left hemisphere piece. And I'll talk a little bit later about the conscious brain and being able to quieten the more unconscious mind that's very noisy and very busy, where it's sometimes it's okay to just wait and see as opposed to just do, 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 which often people see as a measure of success. Yeah, it's that reflective practice rather than this urge to action bias at all times. And we're seeing many tech companies now going through restructuring and they were obviously scaling at enormous speed exponentially and I see them a lot of them still immature in comparison to traditional organizations and how they're managing that change can you give us any practical examples of what you're seeing in the very recent past around that yeah I suppose the tech sector is very interesting because it's still in a way you could say it's new it's still quite young I should say as opposed to new a lot of the tech companies, especially social media companies, are sales organizations. So they're selling advert space based on trends and behaviors. 
And often it can be a very unstable business model because as soon as the iterative trend moves, the ground beneath them is gone in an instant. So they don't necessarily have that relationship with their customers the way maybe other organizations would and have built that. So it's much more transactional in terms of the markets that they're working in. I suppose, you know, from looking and watching various trends within the tech sector, it's a bit of a pack mentality. And if you look at the Silicon Valley story and you look at the way they all started, the way they move, it's a pack mentality in that each company closely follows their competitors. So you saw at the moment, unfortunately, you know, huge layoffs in various different techs. And we're very familiar with them in Ireland, of course, because they like it here for obvious reasons. But I remember just reading there in the last couple of days that an employee from Meta, a previous employee from Meta came out and said, you know, they'd gone from 40,000 employees in 2019 to 70,000 employees in 2022. And as they sort of came out of Meta and they looked back, they realized very quickly that the reason there was such a swell of recruitment was to ensure that those employees didn't join competitor markets. So in terms of kind of almost like um, thinking of a gaming case study I did in my strategy course up in Galway, it defies some of the, the more traditional laws of economics in terms of how businesses work. And of course, then you've got the inflated share price, you've got the balance sheet, which doesn't have stock, it doesn't have enormous amounts of funding at times, and a lot of them operate at a loss for a very long time initially and yet are really inflated in terms of their value. It's very unregulated, of course, and that's a big issue. And I do look with great despair at the generation who have been hooked in. I mean, for the want of a better analogy, heroin has an equivalent effect of the algorithms and the way that it's playing into the brain and the dopamine. And it's pulling at parts of the neurostructure, which has never been leaned on so hard before. And I think it's almost it's unfathomable. It's out of control. So people's minds are fully, fully pulled in all the time for this dopamine fix. And of course, the environment is suffering as well, because if you look at the amount of even just phones, as an example, in terms of hardware, the amount of phones that are in the world and where are they going to go and how they're going to be recycled and all that. So the technology sector is very complex and I think really needs to be studied hard and I think regulated much more rigorously. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. You're talking about heroin there. I think that brings us on to speed and the pace of change. And everybody seems to be on speed. And our topic today is from surviving to thriving. And I saw recent Mercer Global Research showing that 81% are reporting a feeling of risk of burnout. And I suppose we've been through these last number of years, which nobody could see coming. How can we arrest, you know, the speed that we're all traveling on at the moment? So I think there's two components. I think there's the individual person. So you and me, if you were to look at how you measure your self-worth, 
a lot of the time we can get a very skewed notion of our self-worth and we can go looking for that in organisations where we want to get validated, to be seen as worthy, to be seen as really good, to get some sort of endorsement that maybe we didn't get in our childhood, unfortunately. So you have to be very aware of where you're getting your self-worth from. And if you're I suppose, similar to myself in my early 20s, I was highly ambitious. I poured my life and soul into an organisation which was very successful. But now looking back, I know that my self-esteem probably wasn't established in the way that it is now. If you don't have a lot of confidence in who you are and what you're about, you can tend to give away a lot of yourself very easily to, you know, organisations, which at the end of the day will survive long after you've left. I know that uh, Kerry Group is still in billions since I've left. So I'm sure at the time I thought I was uh, a very important part of the organisation. So I think that's the first thing. I think you really need to sit down and figure out what you're doing, how you're doing it, how are you working and why are you working like this? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to gain beyond getting paid, obviously, which is why I imagine most of us go to work. But for a lot of the time, those basic motivators around money, they're incidental. It's that engagement and giving so much of yourself and really figuring out what are the parts of yourself that you're giving away for free and why. On the other side, then, when I look at organisations and their structures, if you could call them that, there's a real, in the last, we'd say 10 years anyway, there's a real move towards short-termism. So highly ambitious growth targets impressive, obviously, in the boardroom to the shareholders, but often I see them killing the brain power of the organization. So you'd see, you know, teams, sales teams, leadership teams bragging about, oh, we're going to grow the business 20, 30% next year. I think growth like that is obviously very possible in the early life cycle of a new business, but it's very short term and unsustainable. And research has shown that companies who go for these highly ambitious, impressive growth targets, shorten their overall life cycle considerably. And in the process, they lose their best talent. I have a lovely example from in London. I worked with a Japanese bank. They were a client of ours. They're in existence since the 1800s. And they were the only bank whose reserves were fully intact after the 2008 crash. And as I was in there and I was, you know, we did a lot of work with them on leadership um, development and other stuff. You know, I I talked about how this was possible and what made them different. And they talked about the fact that they never grew exponentially the way that other investment banks did at that time. And nor obviously did they crash. They pursued a very solid due diligence when they were signing up customers as they knew the relationships that they built were crucial to the integrity of the bank. They're still in business and I imagine will be for a very long time. Their leadership team, the way they make decisions is very considered. And sometimes when we had the mix of the two cultures, the Asian culture and the Western culture, there would be often frustration from the Western side. So people who would come in from other London banks who would have said, why is everything so slow here? Why can't we do and move things quicker? But in actual fact, they had, you know, it's it's like the difference between the hare and the tortoise, like it was to do with really slowing down a process and making a decision whether you want to be a solid player in the market, obviously reinvent yourself at times as you need to, or fast paced, make a quick buck and then crash. So there are the choices I think organizations have to make. And if you're going to go the short term route, 
you really must have no respect for your people because you will burn them out. And that's the reality. And people who are burnt out are, you know, it's such a blight. And I've been there myself. Like it's a terrible thing to inflict on someone from a moral point of view that you've used them so much that there is actually no more left in them. So it's, yeah. So there are the kind of things that I think and talk about in my work. And such wisdom to share, Kerry. And, you know, when you're sharing your content on your programs, then can you see a change in business schools and what is now being taught? And is it being taken on board for this new generation of people who care more about the environment and each other? Can you see that happening now or is there still a way for us to go? Well, I have the advantage, I suppose, of spending a good bit of time in the UK context. So I left Ireland in 2011 and I joined Ashridge, which is a business school in Hertfordshire. A previous boss at Kerry Group had attended a course there and he said he, he called it life changing. So I was deeply curious and I said, I'd really like to see what they do and what's so different. Because I'd come from a more traditional business school model as a junior academic and I felt this didactic expert-led approach was really unfair to working professionals because they don't need to be told theory. They want to know, you know, in practice how to do things better once they get back at work. When I arrived at Ashridge, it was very quickly I was shown, I suppose, what we would now call a pedagogy, but it's the approach to learning. So highly participative, relational approach, and we call it co-creating knowledge with these working professionals. So instead of me standing up and preaching from a lectern, We physically sit together, work through various frameworks with the complete emphasis on application to practice, their practice, and often using experiential methods. All of the people I work with, when they leave, they know exactly what they're going to do differently when they return to work. We do very deep dives into themselves. We discuss, we debate, we laugh, we cry. We work at what we call a peer-to-peer level. And we try and get them to open up. So coaching is a big part of the work we would do as part of programs about what issues they're facing and what are the things that have been holding them back. These sometimes people who'd come in, they might be closeted around their sexuality. They may have never told anyone before and might tell, you know, someone like me who's a stranger in their world and walk out of there. And it's like a boulder has been taken off their shoulder and they can go back into their lives and actually live their lives at work as well. We use things called action learning sets where very small intact groups come together with an issue and it's kicked around, spoken about, and then they come back and revisit it in six weeks and see how it's going. So this kind of participative, supportive approach. I think the big thing is, you know, thinking about business schools and how to work with businesses. I think people need to be honest with themselves. We work with them. We try and create a very reflective, safe environment where they can be honest and talk about what's really going on for their lives. And these are very senior leaders, middle managers, senior leaders. We work with all sorts where we try and create a very safe and truthful environment with no judgment. So it's all curiosity. It's very accepting. And of course, I really thrive in that because I know when that group and all the different groups I've worked with over the years, when they leave, they're going back into organizations and they're behaving in a way that's different. They're behaving in a way that's much more intuitive, much more engaged with, you know, the impact that they might be having on their teams because they're showing too much anger or they've been, you know, leading with a type of a fear approach. 
you know, that feels very rewarding for me to know that me and my colleagues and the other people in the room might have played a role in making employees' lives better at work as a result of that, including the leader. And isn't that so different to the way that we were taught in school and college? You know, this peer-to-peer learning versus the hierarchy of the organisation and the teacher and the student. And then, you know, you talk about going back into the organisation and the complexity now that leaders have to deal with, you know, diversity, sustainability, inclusion, lots of complexities. What are the skills that leaders need to manage this complexity? I think the big skills that people need to manage complexity is around, firstly, understanding what's your purpose? What are you doing and why are you doing it? Is it just simply to produce something and make money, which is the basic law of commerce? Then you're obviously looking at your supply and demand model, which only will give you a few years of existence. We know that the basic laws of economics and free market allow competitors to come into the race at any time and take as much of your cake as they like. And it doesn't matter that you've done the pain of the startup costs. My sense is that we really, if we could shift the focus on purpose, that, you know, obviously businesses are there to make money and I'm not suggesting otherwise. However, in addition, It would be fantastic if organisations, when they are looking at complexity and they're dealing with complexity, to look at areas around sustainability and diversity, because I would suggest that they will form the epicentre of your business going forward. Consumers are actively trawling to see which companies have honour when it comes to sustainable and diverse practices. Your suppliers are the same. I've worked with companies in Ireland and the UK where on a very basic level, the purchasing director now needs, a, you know, when, it, when they're filling out their supplier form, whether a supplier gets approved or not, they have to look at all of their sustainability and diversity practices. So this isn't a kind of a nice to have anymore. It's a lovely way to be able to tell the story of your brand and that. So the complexity piece, I think, really will be helped a lot by trying to reach out into the sustainability and diversity piece and figuring out how you can leverage that. You know, just to address the left and right hemisphere that you talked about then, just maybe in wrapping up, what will be important for us to know and to understand about the two hemispheres of the brain? When I was doing my doctorate, I talked about Organisational Man, which was the book published by a guy called White in the 1960s. And I think the construction and design of organisations has been from this left hemisphere, which is hierarchical. I tell you what to do, you respond. I think what is coming is much more right brain thinking, as I mentioned. We have big, large companies who come to Ashridge doing strategy workshops where we just use storytelling in order for them to determine their strategy over the next five years. So there's lots and lots of traction in this space to try and open up a very different resource, which is inherent to all of us. We all have this inside of us. And I would be hoping that this right hemisphere approach will also help with the environment, will also help with sustainability, because it won't be the short-termism, it won't be, you know, let's get rich quick at the expense in the back of others. I think the leaders won't be taking decisions alone. I think it'll be much more of a, a relational process where you're working a little bit together. I was reading today in an article about migrating birds and I'm sure the whole world probably knows this and I didn't really, in that there is no one leader and that the leader finds its way up and then comes back and another person takes the place at the front of the murmuration or whatever it is. So I think it's similar. I think this model of one leader trying to 
trailblaze and you know have everyone follow that's gone I don't think people will be attracted great to great wisdom to finish up Kerry just briefly some quick fire questions a book you'd most recommend so it's a bit of a door stopper now but I do I really like it so again obviously it's around the left and right hemisphere work that we talked so about so much on this podcast but Ian McGilchrist has written a book many years ago called The Leader and His Emissary And it's quite a revolutionary read because it gives you a whole historical context around how the world has actually been socially constructed, state, church, everything from left hemisphere thinking. And he's really advocating on how the right brain can save us and the world from destruction. So it's not a light read. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, the best advice you've ever been given in your life. Just be yourself. That's always the thing that has come up time and time again. I I met a nun a couple of years ago, a hero of mine, Sister Concilio. She's from Kerry and uh, she set up Coonvery. Some people will be familiar with it. It's an addiction centre and it started out as a shelter for men who were lost and alcoholics with nothing. And I had the privilege of meeting her a couple of years ago. She just took my hand and she said, always just be yourself. And I thought about it afterwards and I was asking her, I said, how do you know what to do when you meet people at their lowest point? And she just looked at me and she said, I just give them love, pure and simple. She said it hasn't failed her yet. So I think that's the best advice. It's My just God, to be we yourself. partnered with Convera over a Christmas donation this year and I went out to Brewery in County Limerick, which is where they have a centre as well. And I met a sister, Agnes, who was from Brosnan, County Kerry, and she's 87, 88 years of age. And my God, what an inspirational woman. And still flying around the place, brought me into the kitchen, had the aga cooker, made me a cup of tea, gave me a bit of apple tart. And I was just in awe of, you know, uh, what she's done because uh, a close friend of mine has been through the centre and it meant something personal for me to be giving something there. And I could see that love that instantly gives out. And and somebody working on purpose and passion, which is that connection that we all want from our work. Kerry, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. We could have talked for ages. I know you've got to do some school duties. So thank you very much, Kerry, for joining us on the CARD podcast. Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.